Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. Today we're visited by guest Dr. Sophie Chow, a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Sydney's School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry and the Charles Perkins Center. Her research explores the intersections of capitalism, indigeneity, and health in Southeast Asia. Sophie previously worked for Indigenous Rights Organization Force People's Program in Indonesia as well. So we have a really great conversation about the state of Indigenous peoples within the Indonesian archipelago. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. I learned a lot, and I'm sure you will too. Sophie, thanks for joining us. Could you introduce yourself? Hi there, Andy. I'm Sophie Chow. I'm a, a researcher and anthropologist at the University of Sydney, and I've been working uh, previously with Indigenous organizations in Southeast Asia um, in a human rights uh, context. Awesome. So I want to talk about that work you've done in the past, especially in Southeast Asia. So I think a lot of people are familiar with this general idea that across the globe, corporations and governments have been pushing indigenous people out of lands that are worth a lot of money because of the materials on them. What's going on in this region and why is this kind of a unique story? Yeah, you're absolutely right in saying that the story of Indigenous peoples being pushed out and dispossessed um, and displaced and disempowered um, for capitalist profit is one that we're hearing across the tropics and beyond. In many ways, um, those dynamics of dispossession and displacement are also uh, very much part of the contemporary landscape in Southeast Asia. What I would say um, is different, uh, well, there's a number of uh, aspects, I suppose. Um, the first is that there's been an incredible um, momentum in terms of activism, land rights movements, uh, indigenous uh, coalitions, uh, who are all pushing for legal reforms and changes to the practices of corporations and the government in the region to ensure that uh, land-based developments are happening in ways that are respectful of indigenous people's right to give or withhold their consent to these developments. Uh, another important difference, I think, boils down to the sort of landscapes we're talking about. Um, most of the landscapes that are being threatened um, by these agro-industrial projects are, uh, you know, forested landscapes and that are immensely high in biodiversity. But more than that, there are also spaces that are of deep uh, cultural, spiritual, um, cosmological significance to indigenous peoples across the Indonesian archipelago. Um, these landscapes are not just resources. Plants and animals are often understood to be kin, family members with whom indigenous peoples share common descent. Um, so that really changes the story um, from one of capitalist profit to one of multi-species relationships that are very much being transformed and undermined um, by the advent of these simplified sorts of ecologies. You mentioned right now this idea of some land projects. That it sounds like there's some indigenous input into those. Could you talk a little bit further about that? Sure. So that goes back to the, the principle of, of consent uh, that I mentioned, which is, you know, a right of Indigenous peoples enshrined in international law, uh, namely this idea that Indigenous peoples have the right to give or withhold their consent to any project that will affect their lands and territories. And I think it's really important to here avoid, um, you know, the, the tendency sometimes to, to homogenize or to romanticize or to simplify the story of Indigenous people's engagements with capitalism in the sense that often, um, you know, many Indigenous communities that I've worked with, certainly in Southeast Asia, are very much um, uh, perceiving these projects as, uh, as a company with the promise of employment and development uh, and poverty alleviation and so forth, right? So the question is not a black or white 
oppose or embrace, but it's more finding ways uh, for Indigenous peoples to participate in equitable, um, inclusive and egalitarian manner in these projects, all the way from the moment in which these projects are designed through to their implementation and then questions of monitoring and verification and validation of sort of, you know, the principles um, that these corporations are deploying in their everyday practices. Um, So that's where the, the question of consent comes in. It's not just a question of consent to the project, it's a question to the, uh, it's a consent to the ways in which Indigenous peoples are going to be benefiting from these projects, uh, both in the present and intergenerationally. Awesome. So I, I've got to ask, how are they gaining any power in these conversations? Because I, historically, mm-hmm. there's never really been an ability to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's an ongoing and difficult struggle and sort of leveling the playing field, the power field uh, between Indigenous communities, government entities, corporate bodies, and also the international financial institutions that are also often invested or involved in some way or another in these large scale land acquisitions. Uh, The truth is that certainly in Indonesia um, and other countries of Southeast Asia, The law is often against Indigenous peoples in the sense that their rights might be recognized in international human rights frameworks that are unfortunately often voluntary or non-binding, but they are not then enshrined in national uh, binding legislation. Or Indigenous peoples come across this issue of national interest, whereby their rights tend to be trumped in the name of development projects that are said to be for the interests of, for instance, national food security or national um, food sovereignty, right? So there's a tension here um, between the law and the benefits that accrue to Indigenous peoples. In Indonesia, Indigenous uh, communities have been, you know, incredibly savvy in establishing networks with uh, international and transnational uh, organizations uh, to try to bring their cases to sort of a more global stage and seek redress and remedy for violations of their rights. And so sort of these collaborative networks operate transnationally, often in very um, effective ways. I think another you know, way in which Indigenous peoples in Indonesia have sought to level the playing field is to yeah, never really rely on a single strategy, but rather to deploy multi-pronged approaches, right? So submitting court cases to national and provincial um, you know, courts, activating UN mechanisms, you know, urgent complaint mechanisms, sending communicated petitions to UN rapporteurs on the right to food or the right of Indigenous peoples. Um, And that's often accompanied with much more direct on the ground actions and protests, demonstrations, blockades, petitions and and these sorts of um, of grassroots um, resistance movements. And it's sort of through a kind of um, strategic deployment of different avenues and different networks and actors that I think Indigenous peoples are are, are working to to level that playing field, all the while, of course, uh, recognizing that this playing field is often situated within a much broader geopolitical economy of extraction um, and, you know, um, political invested, um, political and economic vested interests, uh, which are the the, the bigger struggle, I suppose. It's really interesting. Like you were talking about all these things that they're doing. And I'm like, oh, we see that happening here in the U.S. a lot, except for the international piece, because we're kind of in the belly of the beast, so to speak. So like, you know, when you think about like activists blockading logging sites and things like that, you know, that's the short term solution while they're trying to enforce court cases and things like that. But there's no international community coming to to arbitrate those conversations. So it's, it's really interesting to hear that in a lot of ways, we're doing the same things. We're just much less effective because we're in the belly of the beast, so to speak. 
So in your opinion, do you think the resistance that they're putting forward is pretty effective? Or is there anything you think in particular from your experiences and exposures that is or isn't particularly effective? Or like, I'm just curious about your thoughts as somebody that's been around it for a bit. Um, that's a really great question. Um, I suppose looking back on the five or six years I spent working for the Forest People's Program, which is a human rights organization that works in coalition with indigenous peoples to secure their rights to land. Uh, and then the later ethnographic research I did on, on, on um, this possession in, in West Papua. It's really hard to conjure success stories, right? Um, often NGOs get asked by donors to report on the success stories. And it's it's really difficult to quantify and even qualify for that matter what counts as, as you know, a success. Um, I mean, in some instances, Indigenous communities have been able to reclaim certain plots or portions of the land that had been allocated by the government to corporations, although those tend to represent, you know, very small kind of portions of the very large scale concessions that we're talking about, you know, 200,000, 300,000 hectares. In some cases, successful resistance has taken the form of compensation for, um, for instance, vegetations, crops, human infrastructure that have been destroyed to make way for these industrial uh, plantations, so in cash or in kind. I think another uh, success, I suppose, of the resistance movement in, in Indonesia has been the development of what are called uh, indigenous legal protocols. Um, so this is an attempt by indigenous peoples to get their customary laws um, recognized by the Indonesian government, right, um, as, as law, as, as complements to national laws in the name of sort of a legal pluralism, right, a system that can recognize different ways of understanding, you know, justice-seeking procedures and, and instruments. So a number of the communities that I worked with were able to develop these protocols and had them ratified and recognized by local governments. Taking those to the national level and seeking recognition at the national level is often far more tricky because of this question of national interests trumping local priorities. Um, but again, it, it's hard to it's hard to pin down success. And a, and a large part of that um, also boils down to the fact that Indigenous peoples themselves, as this certainly came out from my research, um, you know, have, have very different internal ideas about what they want for their futures, for their children and their grandchildren, right? Gendered dynamics are super important, but often effaced in the context of advocacy. So, you know, often women, uh, you know, don't necessarily have a voice even within customary decision-making processes. So certainly I was, um, yeah, I, I heard a lot of grievances from women who felt they weren't being heard even within their own communities, right? Let alone beyond. So those kinds of internal um, differences and, and sometimes tensions and disagreements, I think, are, are a big part of the reason why it's hard to, to identify success and success in the eyes of the people themselves who are primarily concerned and affected uh, by, by the outcomes of, of their advocacy. And I also just want to add that certainly in West Papua, where I've been doing my research, um, so the eastern, the western half of the island of New Guinea that was colonized by Indonesia in the 1960s, Resistance has been met with, you know, a highly militarized response from the Indonesian government, you know, which has undermined, you know, undermined the capacity of indigenous peoples to speak up because of the fear of reprisals in the form of intimidation and harassment and coercion and so forth. So sometimes the, the political and historical contexts of particular regions make a big difference to the extent to which resistance is successful, particularly when the right to self-determination, um, you know, in, in political territorial terms is the bigger picture within which these smaller struggles are nested. Yeah, that, that, that's uh, a lot. You know, one of the things I, I really struggle with is like just what you brought up, this idea that 
there isn't a homogenous voice for indigenous people in a region. And it's so hard then to say, what are you supposed to throw your weight of support behind? And here in the U.S., it's more convoluted because of the fact that we exist on lands that are stolen. And I'm just really interested, I guess, like in these conversations of like indigenous rights in some place like Indonesia, like what is the relationship historically between the, I guess the term would be ethnicities um, that have most of the economic power and a lot of these marginalized groups, these marginalized indigenous traditional, traditionally living people, I guess you could say. I think it's, you know, it's a really important um, distinction that you're bringing up, right? Colonized, settler colonized, post-colonial, um, anti-colonial societies. Um, sometimes they can get glossed over um, when there are really important differences. And in Indonesia, um, I mean, different parts of the archipelago, we're talking about a, a, a vast and diverse archipelago. So each region has had particular and different sort of historical trajectories, different sorts of encounters with various colonial forces, both within the region in the form of sultanates and then in the form of European forces, the Dutch particularly. But what certainly um, you know, emerges quite strongly from those diverse histories is, is the kind of the centrality of Java as kind of the economic, cultural, political heart of what became Indonesia following independence from Dutch rule, right? Um, so uh, in that light, uh, many of the indigenous peoples who live in the so-called remote or outlying islands of the archipelago very much see uh, you know, their, their decision-making abilities and capacities relegated to a subsidiary position um, compared to, to the heart of the country, which is Java, which is where the big political economic decisions tend to be made, right? The question of, of, of settler colonization is also part of the landscape to some extent, um, particularly in, in, in regions like um, West Papua, right? West Papuans are Melanesian and uh, they're not, you know, ethnically Malay. They are generally Catholic, so they, they see themselves as religiously distinct also from Java, primarily Muslim. So they have a very sort of different kind of cultural and religious and historical kind of context. So in West Papua, the discourse of, of land back is, is very much part of the picture as well. If not land back, then, you know, settlers out, I suppose, because there's been a, a, you know, a huge influx of migrants from across Indonesia into this particular region, a migration that's often driven by the rhetoric of, you know, this vast area of pristine, untouched land that's sort of just waiting to be developed and used or made useful. So that there's a very strong kind of, um, yeah paternalistic sort of, uh, you know, discourse that tends to accompany or justify migration into West Papua, um, but it's leading to, you know, significant population dilution. Papuans are minorities on their own lands in, in many parts of the area. Uh, and that, of course, has, um, you know, brought and brings up all kinds of concerns about con cultural continuity across generations. So, yeah, that diversity across the, the country, I think, makes for different kinds of histories. But um, always a sort of um, yeah sense that sense that Java makes the decisions and that you know the laws of the laws of the center tend to dominate and that indigenous peoples are often subject to developmentalist discourses um, where development is said to uplift them from a punitive poverty and um, even if they don't perceive their own ways of life or livelihoods or modes of subsistence you know as poor in in any shape or form themselves. Yeah, it's. Um... That dilution is really important to keep in mind because it has so many effects. And, uh, you know, one of the things we see, I feel like I keep talking back around where I live, but the idea of like continuity of tradition and culture and then trying to reclaim it. And what does that reclamation look like once it's been cut off, soldered off, and then trying to regrow from that spot years later, generations later? It's a messy and complicated process forward and there's really no easy way to solve it without 
well, there's just no easy way to solve it, period. Yeah. Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Proles Almanac, and... And we're not the Poor Proles Almanac. You're right. We are tomorrow, today... And I'm Nash Flynn from Death and Friends. Tomorrow today is our chance to talk to folks about cutting-edge research that helps us understand what tomorrow looks like, but today. We've got exciting guests. And we'll speculate wildly about what the future looks like. Will the ocean currents slow down in your lifetime, leaving temperate climates decimated? Will we go to Mars? Will we drown in climate-induced ocean floods filled with microplastics? Will new research rewrite the history our children read? Will the sun... Is this going to be another Doomer question? No. Tomorrow, today, wherever you get your podcasts and also on Instagram. So you talk a lot in your other research about this concept of gastrocolonialism. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the concept of gastrocolonialism um, is, is not one that I coined myself. It's one that I borrowed and expanded from an indigenous scholar, poet and activist called Craig Santos Perez, who uh, works at the University of Hawaii. And Craig uses this term to talk about the ways in which colonialism manifests beyond the sort of structural, ideological and political um, in in our gut, really, um, in the ways in which colonialism has reconfigured the foodways and associated ecosystems and traditions of indigenous peoples in ways that have been highly detrimental to their well-being, well-being understood in the broadest sense of the term to encompass physical health, but also mental health and cultural sort of continuance and, and survivance, right? So in his work, he looks at, you know, commodities like canned meat, um, you know, fizzy drinks, biscuits, that sort of thing. Um, in Indonesia, I've also looked at how gastrocolonialism manifests in the transformation of indigenous peoples, forest-based and slash-and-burn-based foodways to imported, commodified, process-based foodways, and particularly the ways in which these um, changing food systems are once again often couched in um, developmentalist discourse, right, where particular kinds of foods become associated with modernity and progress and sort of integration of indigenous peoples into a global consumer community. So foods are never neutral. Um, Their significance goes well beyond sort of calories and food groups and nutrients, and they are profoundly imbued with political, cultural and and moral significances. So that's how I I sort of deploy the concept of gastrocolonialism. It's not even just the food in terms of buying it. It's the context of which food exists outside of the consumption component that gets erased. It, It reinforces that if your food is not from your local place, you can't grow it even if you wanted to. And it puts a a nice layer in between people and their landscape. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. You've hit the nail on the head. And that's one of the biggest motifs among many of the indigenous people that I worked with is that food is as much about the substance as it is the origin. And the people whose sweat is invested um, in the materiality of this food, the relationship of that food with the broader environment from which it was produced. So there's a whole array of different meanings and networks and tentacles of significance that kind of coalesce in in what food is and they they affect you know the palatability the palatability of foods um as much as they affect their sort of symbolic significance going back to this idea of the government kind of intervening on behalf of corporations and kind of trying to find you could call like the third way between the corporations completely just like killing everyone and the indigenous people having their sovereign right to own their own land. How is this idea of like offering foods and like subsidizing getting these types of foods into these communities? Like, could, could you talk a little bit about what that process has looked like? And, you know, in terms of this, I don't know if there's anything to speak on in terms of the actions of like the, the activists that are trying to keep 
those communities sovereign against pushing back on that? Mm-hmm. Great question. So in, in West Papua, where I've been working, um, often these imported processed commodities are offered by corporations and the governments as compensation for land that communities are surrendering for agribusiness developments, be it oil palm or timber or other sorts of crops. So the foods themselves um, are, are taken as of the same value as these lands ceded, which obviously, you know, they, they are not um, in the eyes of indigenous peoples. Uh, but again, and the idea is, um, you know, certainly in many of the consultations and meetings that I attended that involved multi-stakeholder groups of government, corporations, and indigenous peoples, um, you know, foods like rice, foods like instant noodles, uh, were described as not just, you know, nutritionally uh, better than forest-based foods, which they're not always <laughs> not necessarily the case, even when they're biofortified. But the, the idea is very much that the transformation of indigenous peoples from nomadic hunter-gatherers to modern members of the Indonesian nation-state begins with what they eat, right? And their identity is very much, you know, bound to what they eat. Um, So there's a very nationalistic discourse, often that accompanies um, the introduction of these foods. There's a big uh, educational dimension as well. So often governments and corporations, and and shame and blame is a big part of the story, this idea that often it's the women who are targeted, or rather who are offered these foods, and then told that, you know, that this is the proper way to feed your children, right? That to be a responsible mother is to, uh, you know, offer these nutritious, um, you know, imported commodities to your children instead of Sago or forest game or forest tubers, right? So there's a sort of... um, yeah, a sort of a, a, a responsabilization placed on mothers as carers and food providers and children, child rearers uh, to integrate these foodways um, within the local systems. But a, a big dimension, I think, of also the ways in which these foods are being offered is that, you know, often many people in Papua are, are very... Um, offended by the ways, the actual ways in which these foods arrive. So people often are made to queue up, right, in front of the corporate headquarters to receive their rations or um, their packages of food. Often they're made to wait for many, many hours under the scorching heat. If they don't arrive wearing shoes and a t-shirt, they might be refused the food because they need to be dressed properly, right? Most people in the villages I work with don't need to wear shoes. And so there's a lot of stigma that then comes attached with the processes um, entailed in these exchanges of, of, of food and land, right, for many of the communities. That sounds exactly like how our military <laughs> operates. They basically try to break you down in order for you to have like the basic meaning or things that you need to survive. And then they can basically tell you what you're going to do and you just say yes, because you've been broken. And that sounds exactly like the same thing. And that's like frightening and horrifying that they could do this. You're absolutely right. You're making me think of one of the one a quote from one of my interlocutors, um, an indigenous Marin woman from West Papua, who was talking precisely about you know the attritive effect um, of these introduced foodways, and she said, you know, these introduced foods, the rice, the instant noodles, they're there to keep us alive, but they don't make a life worth living. And I remember that really stuck with me because it was true, right? The food, you know, satiates our basic need to eat, to consume, to keep our bodies alive, but that's a very different story to what makes a life worth living. Um, and for many Marin, you know, it's about the forest and it's about the environment. and It's about their cosmology and spiritualities in ways that vastly trans- transcend the pragmatics of simply feeding oneself. I, I have to ask, like, I understand that the government's doing marketing to sell this type of program to the people in order for them to buy in. But I've got to imagine there must be more to it in terms of like, is it because of the fact that they've decimated so much of the landscape that like maybe there's less game available and it's making 
these types of opportunities more appealing? Could you, I mean, I don't know anything about that. I don't know if you could speak at all to that. Do you mean more appealing for the communities? Yes. Or for the, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the sobering reality of it is that indeed, uh, you know, vast swaths of the native forests that Indigenous peoples um, in West Papua traditionally relied on for their subsistence, a form of hunting, fishing and gathering are now giving way to monocrop plantations um, where little food is to be found. Um, so there's there's that context. And, you know, the truth is that there are also many people, certainly that I worked with, um, who are, uh, yeah, uh, embracing these introduced foods, not just because there are little alternatives, but also because they do believe that, you know, it is a way of expanding their world um, and integrating into globalized sort of food ways uh, and, yeah, expanding their sort of sense of the world and, and their place in that world. Um, so that's also part of the story. And it's a big source of conflict, actually, and tension uh, and, and arguments uh, among many indigenous peoples themselves, right, and that are often infected across generational lines. So where the younger generations are not interested in hunting or fishing or go and would much rather have instant noodles and, and rice. So those, again, moving away from that sort of homogenization, all kinds of internal disagreements, I suppose, with gastropolitics. But I think, you know, for a lot of the a lot of the people that I worked with, um, I guess it's a bit of a chicken and egg, right? If you start to embrace these introduced food ways and you're in some ways endorsing or legitimating the further destruction of, of the forest and its own kinds of food ways. Um, so where does it begin? Where does it end? And another big part of the story of food ways in, in Papua is that, you know, people often talk about the ways in which deforestation and urban expansion are not just causing hunger and malnutrition in the villages, they're, they're also causing hunger for the species of the forest, um, the animals, the birds, all of these creatures that Marin consider to be their kin, their siblings, their grandparents. Um, so hunger is kind of distributed across species lines. So to embrace introduced foods also means, you know, accepting or endorsing the destruction of a whole ecosystem that feeds and is fed by these other deeply significant non-human others. So we're talking about a kind of very multi-species way of thinking about food um, and relations of feeder um, and fed and, and of be eating and being eaten, I suppose. Yeah, it's very much the uh, mutually assured destruction of the old 50s movie about, of course, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, about the nuclear war, uh, potential nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the US. But yeah, it's this idea that like without humans to intervene and improve the landscapes through these slash and burn Sweden agriculture, cycling of various stages of the forest in different areas so that there's always these different margins where animals can hunt and thrive, uh, you've basically determined that the forest should look something else. And even without the plantations moving in, that means that there are going to be a massive reconfiguration of what species exist and ultimately, in most cases, less life, period. Absolutely. Yeah. A radical simplification and homogenization of, of the life world, I suppose, that, that once were these diverse ecosystems, including their human dwellers. Yeah. Now, looking forward, what are your thoughts on, I guess, like the way things are trending right now? Do you have hope or is it just like you think a slow churn that will just continue to destroy more and more? Um, that's always the big question. Um, <laughs> hope. I'm so torn about hope. Um yeah, I mean, I, I, my, my indigenous friends in Papua, when I start to lose hope, they always tell me that I'm not allowed to because they haven't. And if they haven't, then who am I, a, you know, Eurasian foreign privileged anthropologist to give up hope when they're living in the midst of this pr predicament, right, and most deeply and directly affected by it. At the same time, I think hope can be kind of 
pharmaconic um, sometimes um, because it's often such a disputed kind of disposition, right? What does one hope for? Um, how are hopes multiple and sometimes conflicting even within a single society or a single village or even a single family or indeed a single being? Um, it's a slippery kind of thing, isn't it? But I do think we need it and I think it, it is there. Um, and part of the reason for that is uh, that, you know, it goes back to this strategy of, of this multi-pronged activist strategy that many indigenous peoples in Indonesia have deployed, where they're trying to broaden the capillaries of, of action and, and communication um, um, at the national and transnational level. They're really beginning to get their voices heard, and they have been ongoingly doing that as indigenous peoples, you know, for, for, for a very, very long time. So that activism, I don't think, uh, is going to stall uh, or stop. It will continue. I think that, I mean, I always sort of wonder about consumer consumer awareness and whether we as, as purchasers of commodities um, that do connect us to these seemingly out of the way places, whether we do have any power at all to make differences at that sort of structural sort of, you know, large, uh, you know, higher sort of level. Um, I think sort of everyday decisions, you know, matter, but I do think they need to be accompanied with much broader sort of structural legal kind of reforms um, that can affect change and transformation, you know, at a broader kind of scale. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, hope is, I want to believe in it. I think that's the best answer I can give you. I want to believe that there is hope. Um, I think otherwise there is a risk of sinking into a paralyzing politics of despair um, and resignation in the face of these seemingly insurmountable forces uh, that Indigenous peoples are facing. But the truth is Indigenous peoples are still around and they are still fighting and they are still surviving. They are still continuing. Um, they are working together um, across the tropics, um, across the world, you know, to preserve and protect their lands and futures. Um, so it's it's in their hands, I think, that that hope lies. Again, that's in line with, I suppose, the broader principle of self-determination um, and where we can offer allyship um, and solidarities to those struggles, um, we should. But of course, it then raises up some much bigger questions, right, around questions of positionality and reflexivity for people like me, you know, an anthropologist. God knows that's a discipline that is weighed in um, and bound at the hip with colonialism. Um, so then, you know, ethical questions come up as to who we speak for and against and with um, and how our own situatedness within these colonial legacies shapes or affects what stories we can and can't tell and then the way we tell them. So I guess my hope is that we, we don't stop telling bitter stories, but we start telling better bitter stories in conversation with the peoples um, who are, again, most deeply and directly mired in the predicament of, of hope. Yeah, extremely well said. So the reason why I wanted to bring up this question of hope is I feel like when I was doing the research for this, um, the last half of the previous episode and trying to figure out kind of mm -hmm. where things stand today, there seems to be mm -hmm. a lot of articles, at least online, that suggest that the government has started to realize in the last few years the value of some of these traditional forest management practices. Yeah. And I was wondering, somebody that actually has some exposure and knowledge of what's actually going on. Is this something that's more for like the, the international public to, you know, quell their concerns? Or do you think there is mm -hmm. some kind of actual meaningful change, maybe even just kind of bubbling below the surface, but there? Great question. I mean, Indonesia, Indonesia is actually a really interesting context to think about this question, because in recent years, there's been quite a proliferation of different laws that recognize um, traditional forest management practices by so-called customary law communities, which is the Indonesian term for uh, Gloucester's indigenous peoples. 
And, you know, some of these laws, uh, you know, they, they often apply at the village level um, or the district level, and they have allowed communities to preserve certain patches of forest um, from agribusiness developments and um, to continue their own forms of agroforestry and that tend to be anchored in polycropping, right, and um, selective management and maintenance um, of, of different sort of food crops. One of the biggest challenges to this, the, you know, the, the ongoingness of these traditional management practices has to do with scale, Andy. Um, so if you think about slash and burn, for instance, as you described, this is a very cyclical, temporally distributed process that requires time for particular patches of forests to regenerate. So that all works fine and well if you've got a significantly large area of land where these different stages of the cycle um, can, you know, um, occur across time. But often what happens is that um, the lands, the customary lands of communities are, are so restricted or, or, or narrowed or, or, or smallened as a result of the allocation of broader patches to corporations that these cycles don't have enough time or space to actually unfold in the way that they should, right? Um, everything needs to sort of be accelerated and whatever can be produced from these areas in terms of food crops um, tends to be less or has to happen in a more intense agricultural sort of mode, so more planting on smaller areas of land. Um, so that question of how much land is enough to allow for traditional ecological practices to continue, I think is the big one. Um, and it's certainly one that many of the people that I worked with brought up, right? Um, and also accompanied with a sense of injustice as to why polycropping is, is you know, relegated to, to small patches, whereas monocropping, you know, necessitates these hundred thousand hectares of land um, to which, of course, corporations have their own cartier arguments in terms of productivity and yield and, 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 all, and profit and so forth. So I'd say these traditional forest management practices are there. They require the land um, that they do, uh, and that's that's really uh, it, it. Still boils down to a question of rights to land, sovereignty over land, and you know participation of indigenous peoples in terms of uh, land management and 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 use uh, sort of decisions. Yeah, it it speaks to the fact that there's this thing that's not being quantified in the conversation about how indigenous land management practices have benefit and value, and just because they're not profitable doesn't necessitate that they're of lesser production. It's that that production's much more nuanced and it's not intrinsically tied to humanity in the sense of like we consume it. Yeah. In a way we do, but it's it's air, it's healthy ecology, you know, it's all these other things. It's not yeah. food uh, in the sense of a monocrop where it's net in, net out. And, you know, you yeah. can make the argument that that's inherently unsustainable because you've simplified mm -hmm. an ecosystem. And uh, I'm, I'm just really curious if that's like somewhere deep in the, the heart of like these conversations about like giving some giving some voice to these ideas of traditional land management if there's this realization happening that these skills are probably going to be very important in the future because the way we're doing things can't continue forever it's you know there's just no possible way scientifically speaking the materials don't exist forever the, the petrochemicals we use for fertilizers don't exist forever and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. It's always just this very interesting dynamic to figure out how these governments with very smart people in them are thinking about these issues in a way that must be rational. If they're just kicking, you know, they're playing hot potato and it's not their problem right now, so who cares? Or if they deep down know at some point things have to change and they're kind of laying the framework for that where they don't look as terrible <laughs> as they should. But I, I don't I don't really have an answer to that. It's just, it, it's an interesting time to be alive. That's for sure. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So Sophie, this is uh, fantastic. If people want to hear more from you or read some of your work, uh, is there anywhere you want to send them to? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can direct them to my website, www.morethanhumanworlds.com, where you can find all my publications and also media engagements as well. Awesome. So this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Great. I hope I did justice to your questions. They were good ones. <laughs> you did fantastic. Fantastic.